The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. The title of today's sermon is called Day One of Creation, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. We began formally day one last week. If you were not here, we began to look at verse 2 of what God did at the very beginning in creation, uh, and then... Moses, who is the author of Genesis, wrote it probably about 1400 B.C. as he was moved by the Spirit of God to write down exactly what God wanted him to write down because Moses wasn't there when all of this happened. No one was there when all of this happened in the beginning. Scientists were not there. Evolutionists weren't there. Richard Dawkins wasn't there. Stephen Hawking wasn't there. No one was there except God, the triune God of the universe, and him alone. He knows exactly what happened. He's the creator. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. He's eternal. He's sovereign, and he revealed this information directly to his prophet Moses. As I said, in about 1400 B.C., Moses wrote it down, and then God graciously preserved this information for us for over 3,000 years. And now we have the wonderful privilege to read, wow, answering some of the most fundamental and basic questions that humanity has been confronted with for thousands of years, and that is when did everything begin and how did it all get here? And also, why are we here? What's the purpose, if there is a purpose? Genesis answers all those questions very specifically and thoroughly, even in the first three chapters of the Bible. Those of you who have not been with us, just so you know, we usually go through New Testament books, but we're taking a little break to go through this Old Testament book, which is 50 chapters. We're just going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis because Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are foundational in many ways. They tell us how many things began from God's point of view. Just about every conceivable thing. We could actually go up to chapter 11 to see how everything began, but the first three chapters are absolutely vital and foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible, to understanding Christianity, why Jesus came, how to interpret the world right now, why you're living in it. So it just answers so many questions. And that's why we're taking this time to study it. I chose Genesis 1 through 3 because there's a lot of misunderstanding about Genesis, excuse me, chapter 1 through 3. Not just misunderstanding from non-Christians, people who don't believe in the Bible. There's tremendous misunderstanding about the book of Genesis and Genesis chapters 1 through 3 within the Christian world today, like never before, really. Confusion abounds. And so there's a lot of discussion Sometimes disagreement, sometimes even more passion disagreement than that among professing believers about how we should interpret Genesis. We're just taking it at face value, going verse by verse, word by word, believing that Moses wrote it in a way that we could just understand like any other book of the Bible. So that's our approach, and we think God's going to answer a lot of questions along the way. Well, Pastor Cliff, how many sermons have you preached on Genesis so far? You're not even at through verse 2. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, like five or six sermons, I think. Why are you going so slow? I explained that last week. Many reasons. Because I'd say if I had to pick two books that are more confused among Christians, not I'm not talking about unbelievers, books in the Bible that are more confused in terms of how to study them, read them, interpret them, and apply them. Among Christians, professing believers, I'd say the book of Revelation and Genesis. And so that's why I'm going so slow, Genesis 1 through 3. Incredibly misunderstood, but so vitally important. 
And in all the discussions I have with other believers who have a different interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3 than, than I do, or the historical interpretation of it, is because frequently the professing believer is not giving an attention to any detail. They're just pass by and ignore details that are actually in the text. Which reminds me of what Jesus said to Satan in Matthew chapter 4 when he was being tempted by the devil. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, being confronted by Satan, the deceiver, and to combat Satan's error and deception, Jesus didn't just take it upon himself, well, I'm the Son of God, take that. What was Jesus' defense in dealing with truth and deception and the twisting of reality? Three times he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. So the authority that Jesus used to answer the most important questions upon being confronted with a critic, Satan himself, Jesus had a straightforward, literal approach to Scripture. And then he, this little phrase that is so important in there when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but upon, here it is, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus was interested in giving attention to every word in Scripture. That's why we're going so slow. There's tremendous significance. We can't bypass the details and resort to and be content with philosophy or conversation from a distance, ignoring the details in the passage that God has given. Jesus reiterated the importance of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word in Scripture is vitally important and means something. God put it there for a reason. In Matthew chapter 5, the next chapter, Jesus referred to every jot and tittle in the Scriptures. Every jot and tittle matters. Every jot and tittle will be preserved. Not one jot or tittle will ever fall, fade away until all is fulfilled. So every jot and tittle, that's more than every word that comes out of God's mouth. When Jesus said every jot and tittle, that's the equivalent of saying every letter, like the letter I in Scripture. And not only every letter, but every dot on every I. That's really what he meant. So that's why we're not just getting a minutia for the sake of being studying academic. It's what is God revealing by what he's saying. So let's proceed in our study on the first day of creation, verses 2 through 5. Five main points that I've got there. And last week... Primarily, we talked about the transition from verse 1 to verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I believe that's just a a literal statement. In the beginning, God created everything that we know that is in the entire universe, including the spiritual realm, which would include angels. In the beginning, God, boom, spoke, and it all came into existence. And the form in which it came into existence at first was it was formless, like a huge piece of clay that the potter is about to fashion over the course of six days. And it was void. No one could live on it yet, specifically the earth. And over the course of six days, God would form the earth and make it habitable so that at the end, human beings, the apex of God's creation, could actually inhabit and live successfully on the earth that he had created. So verse 1 declares God created everything, brought it into existence, and now over the next six days, he's going to form it and fashion it and make it livable for animals, plants, and especially human beings who are made in his image. And so we are on day one. And we talked about how verse 1 ends with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then the first, ver- the first word in verse 2 is the earth. So he, he brings up the earth. I just talked about the heavens and the earth, but now let me focus on the earth. That's the point of verse 2. Let me focus on the earth. There's all of creation, but I just want to talk about earth because earth becomes the subject of the rest of chapter 1. All of chapter 1 
for the next six days is the focus is on the earth for a purpose because the rest of the Bible, the focus is on the earth. God cares about the earth. And that's why the earth is the first word in your Hebrew text in verse two, the earth. And last week I gave you seven reasons why the gap theory, an old Christian view invented in 1814 was impossible based on the Hebrew grammar of the text. Seven reasons. And some of you were probably yawning, sleeping, dreaming. Well, well, this is monotonous. I've never heard of it. Who cares? What's this all about? What does this have to do with anything? And then I said, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but there's probably some out there who actually believe in the gap theory. You're Christians. You love the Bible. You were taught this view. And you've believed this view, and maybe even today as you're walking in, you believe in the gap theory. Lo and behold, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I've had people since then talk to me from this church, this congregation, who had the guts and the courage to come up and say, you know what, Pastor Cliff, I, I believed in the gap theory. Thank you for talking about it. And so we've had some wonderfully edifying discussions. It's been awesome. So thank you, Lord. That was important. Where else would they have been able to discuss it and learn uh, especially the details of what God's text says, that the gap theory is, it is impossible based on the grammar, is what we talked about last week. So uh, let's move beyond the gap theory. Let's move beyond the transition. Now we'll talk about the content, verses 2 through 5, on the first day of creation. When God created light, that's the main thing that God created on day one, is God created light. We'll get to that more specifically in a second. But let's go ahead and look at this. So in the beginning, God creates everything. Uh, it is with the focus being on the earth and it's there's no light yet he hasn't created yet so what does it look like so verse two so the earth was formless and void so again the focus is on the earth that's god's focus it's amazing through the rest of scripture the earth is the stewardship gift that human beings are responsible for the earth is part of god's eternal plan and the plan of the ages, and that needs to be our focus, not the heavens. Uh, Jesus was focused on the earth. All throughout the Old Testament, God is focused on the earth. God makes a promise about the earth. As a matter of fact, in the future, Jesus said that he's going to rule on the earth. And saints are going to reign with him on the earth. And Revelation says that's going to be for a thousand years. So the earth will still be in existence and the earth will be the epicenter of what God is doing with redeemed humanity. It, right now, all throughout history and even in the future, the earth is the focal point. And then even in eternity, God said, I will make a new heavens and I will make a new earth. And then God will have a literal earth that will be the focal point for redeemed people for all of humanity. Why is that important? Well, I just bring that up because I think it's significant because... The earth is the main stage of God's drama of salvation for human beings. And yet in the world today, more and more, we're hearing that the earth is not. It's what Mars is the focal point. They're making movies about Mars. It's like the world wants to think about, oh, there's something more out there. There's something beyond and greater than the earth and humanity. Well, there's not. As a matter of fact, everything in the earth, I mean, in the universe, stars, planets, Mars, were all created to complement the work God is doing on the earth. And the world, unbelieving world, their worldview doesn't understand that. They, they, they're vying for more, grasping for more. Why? Because they can't find fulfillment on this earth. Because there will be no fulfillment and contentment until you give your life totally to the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of your sin and asking him to be the Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sin, believing in his death and resurrection. That is the only thing that gives meaning here on earth to life. Otherwise, there's just an emptiness. 
And so that's why the world is always vying for more. Oh, there, maybe there's aliens out there and uh, these big-time wealthy CEOs, are tr- they have plans to go and build a plantation on Mars and other planets, which is ridiculous and it ain't going to happen. And recently we, we were being deceived within the last two years where scientists were telling, oh, after there is water on Mars after all. I don't know if you remember that, and they're blowing their trumpet. Well, it turns out, oops, we made a mistake. There is no life on Mars. But this is just basic to the Bible. It's about what God is going to do here on the earth. So he says the earth, well, what was the earth like when God first created it with this word out of nothing instantaneously? Well, the earth was formless and void. That's what it was like. So formless and void. For those of you who have read Genesis, maybe that phrase is familiar to you. It's a technical phrase, formless and void. And if you read the Hebrew, it's kind of interesting. Formless and void are actually two Hebrew words that rhyme. They're rare words, especially the second one. Tohu and bohu. Those are the words. Tohu and bohu. I think Moses deliberately did that. He was a literary genius, yet he preserved the significant meaning with those two words. Tohu and bohu. What was earth like when God first created it? At the very beginning, out of nothing, well, it was formless and void. It was tohu and bohu. Those two words together are used maybe three times in the the Old Testament together. One significant time is in Jeremiah. And tohu and bohu, the New American Standard says formless and void, which is probably the best translation. And it's referring to two specific things. The earth was formless, meaning it didn't have its form yet. It's just a, a big old pile of clay that the potter is going to fashion. That's what formless means. Void means empty. No one's living on it because they can't live on the earth yet for a lot of reasons. At this point, they can't live on the earth. Humans can't live on the earth because it's submerged and covered in water. Also, there's no light and human beings and plants and animals need light. That hasn't been created yet. So there's a lot of work that God has to do before life can be sustained on earth. And so those two words... Formless and void, tohu and bohu, describe exactly what it was like before God makes it habitable for human beings. So the earth in the very beginning was formless and void. That A couple of of translations can mislead people. There's been kind of a battle and debate about how to properly translate those two words, tohu and bohu. Here's some suggestions. The NIV, New New International Version, says formless and empty. That's actually a good translation. Any of you NIV people that want to admit you have an NIV? Way to go, NIV people. At least on that verse and phrase. That's actually very good. King James Version does excellent and says without form and void. Two different things, two separate things describing the condition of the earth. There are other translations that are very bad. Here's one. A desert and a wasteland. It's not, the, the earth was not a desert because it's submerged in water. As a matter of fact, the phrase in verse 2 that says... Over the surface of the deep means that the entire planet Earth, all landmass, was submerged underwater. There was no land visible yet. So actually, that's a horrible translation. And it's not true to the Hebrew words. A desert and a wasteland? Another scholar's attempt. A formless waste. So they abandoned two separate ideas. Tohu and bohu are two separate descriptions. They merge them together and come up with a formless waste. They turn one of them into an adjective. Shouldn't do that. They're both nouns. A formless waste, bad. Here's another one. Total chaos. 
Another horrible translation that's not true to Scripture. And the message, I don't want to embarrass you if you use the message or read out of the message. Or, but here's what the message says. A soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness. So if you want to laugh, you can. A soup of nothingness. That is just, that's just ridiculous. That is not consistent with what God's word says. And if you want to shelve your message for the rest of your life, I, I would recommend that you do that. Because it, it's not consistent with scripture in too many places. It's, just, it's actually very misleading. So the best translation, taken the context of value, uh, the words literally given by God, the NIV, the NASB, the King James, King James, ESV, they all do a great job, and that's what it should be. The earth, when God created it, was formless and void. Human beings, plants, animals couldn't live on it, yet God had some work to do. He's going to fashion it. He is the master potter, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9. So that's formless and void. Uh, and then he begins to describe uh, further. It's formless and void. There's nobody living there. It's submerged. And then he says, and darkness was over. Okay, darkness. There was just darkness. In other words, there's an absence of light. God is light, yes, but this is not talking about God. This is talking about created matter. All things that God created. There was no light yet. And so it's just this mass of total darkness, which we can't even imagine what that's like other than just closing your eyes being totally blind. But that's what it was like. All existence was there. The earth was there. But it was in utter, total darkness over the surface of the deep. And the surface of the deep refers specifically to there was just this mass of water. And underneath it was all what would become land and the earth. It's all submerged under the water. And it's all covered with the deep. And darkness was actually over literally the faces of the deep. And that's kind of descriptive of the waves that are crashing around the sea on planet Earth at that time. So the terminology, very specific, very picturesque. So not only that, God's describing what it's like, but also God describes his personal attention and care for the Earth. It's his creation. He cares for it. And so uh, look at your outline there. We talked about, number one, the confusion. There's no gap theory. Number two, the condition. Well, the earth is uninhabitable, formless and void. And then number three, well, the confirmation that creation actually happened this way, the confirmation, the testimony of two or three witnesses, the only two and three witnesses that were around when all this happened was the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit himself. We talked about how the Father definitely was the creator in there. We also referred to a couple of New Testament passage that explicitly said Jesus was here at the time of creation and even involved in creation. We saw that in Colossians 1.16, John chapter 1, verse 1, verse 3, verse 10. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, all things came into being by him. The Lord Jesus Christ was a part of creation. Not only the Father, the Son were involved in creation, the Spirit of God himself. So point number three, the confirmation. The Spirit of God was present. The Spirit was present. And that's Going on in verse 2, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the sea covering the earth. And the Spirit of God was there. The Spirit of God was there. So the Spirit of God was present with the Father. The Spirit of God was involved with creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inseparable at all times. They're always together. They're always in harmony. They're always complementing one another. And we learn from Scripture they are distinct persons, yet they all have very specific roles Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father created everything through Christ using the agency of the Holy Spirit somehow. It's absolutely amazing. This is like who rose Jesus from the dead. 
Well, the Father rose Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus said he raised himself from the dead. And Paul says that the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. The triune God. And so specifically, you've got the Spirit of God mentioned in verse 2 of the first book of the Bible. The Spirit of God was there. He was present. Not only was he present, he was involved. It goes on and it says, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So he was present there. He was attentive. He was nearby. He was involved. Uh, The terminology literally not just moving over. He was hovering over. The Hebrew verb hovering over. Same verb used in Deuteronomy 32 verse 11. Referring to a mother eagle hovering over her nest. Taking care of warming her chicks in their nest very intimate care and that's exactly what the spirit of god is doing here and how he's being utilized hovering over caring for on behalf of the father psalm 104 verse 30 specifically says the spirit of god was present and involved at the time of creation amazing which just, again, reminds me, when we got all this debate about how things began, uh, was it 14 billion years ago, and it wasn't literal days, and it didn't happen this way, but it happened this way, and all these theories going out. And my question always comes back to, well, how do you know? Who's your ultimate authority? Tell me who your ultimate authority is of your view of how things originated, if you don't have a biblical view. Well, it was zillions of years ago, and it happened this way, and it came from nothing became, or no, uh, Crystals became green slime, and green slime spontaneously generated into life, and then it developed, and it just keeps going. Well, how do you know? How do you know? Who was there? Who saw it? Who observed it? The answer is nobody except God and God alone, and God is telling us exactly how it happened. He was there. Jesus was there. The Spirit was there. Truth is ratified by the validity of the testimony of two or three witnesses, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is exactly how it happened. And the Spirit of God was intimately involved, hovering over God's creation. Over the surface of the waters. Let's point, look at point number four on day one. So the, the entity that God actually created on day one. Or fashioned specifically. Uh, verse four, the creation God made light. Verses three and four. So God, his goal, I got to make this habitable. I got to make this a place for human beings to live and thrive on. It's got to be a place for the Son of God to come as Savior and thrive on. And what do all humans need and all plants need and all animals need to live and thrive? It's basic to life is light. And that's verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. So God said, let there be light. We don't know if this was audible or how he did it. There was nobody around to save Jesus in the Spirit at this time. And then he said, let there be light. Declared it to be so and instantaneously in a moment. Light came into existence. This is on day one. Verse four, then God makes a pronouncement about his creation and God saw that the light was good. That's an ethical declaration by almighty God. It was perfect. In other words, it wasn't tainted with sin yet. There was no influence from Satan yet. Everything about light at that time was good. As opposed to the world in which we live, where we live in a cursed earth, a cursed world, a cursed universe, a cursed sky, a cursed solar system, we've got a cursed demon population in the invisible world, and so our our world in which we live is not good. It is cursed, cursed, cursed. This was before all of that. It was good. It was ideal for human life and plant life and animal life at this point, and the light was good because there are times where light is not good for us, right? You get sunburned. That is not good. So there are things about light that were actually different at this time so god said let there be light boom there was light 
And it happened just like that. Where did light come from? What is light? That's a scientific debate. PhD dissertations have been written about light, where it came from, uh, how it operates, what it's called, what it's made of. That goes back to the ancients and the Greeks and the philosophers. And they debated and all through history and views kept changing as we developed in science and technology and uh, the great minds and Descartes, he had his views. And then Einstein, he had his views. And it just keeps getting tweaked all the time trying to answer one of these most important questions. Where does light come from and how did we get it here? Well, we know. The Bible says God said, let there be light. And that's where it came from. Boom. Instantaneously a gift from Almighty God. Well, this happened on the first day. That was the gift. So the creation, God made light. What did he make it out of? Well, nothing. He just declared it to be so. Verse 3. How did God make light? It said, well, he did it by the power of his word. Listen to Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11, I, I referred to it a, a, a couple of weeks ago, I think. So it's the, that chapter on faith. How all the great saints of all the ages lived by faith, believed God by faith, trusted God by faith, obeyed God by faith. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay, future things God says he's going to do. We can't see it. It's in the future. and But I think he's going to do it because I'm hoping he is because I have faith in God. And it's also the evidence of things not seen. Uh, I believe God there is a heaven. I believe God there is a hell. I can't see it. It's a reality. It's going on right now. It's invisible. It's unseen. I believe there's a spiritual realm. I believe there are demons and angels and Satan. I can't see it. But by my faith, I believe it. Rock solid. My evidence is my faith. And by faith, the men of old, believers in ancient past, gained approval. That's how you gain approval with God the Creator. How do you appease God? How do you find favor with God? How do you come to know God? What is God pleased by? It's not your works. It's not my works. It's not anything we do, anything we say. It's not our works. It's by faith. It's trusting Him. That's what pleases God, trusting Him. That's the walk of the Christian life. We walk by faith. The world doesn't understand that. They try to appease God with works and sacrifices and everything else coming from their own hands. doesn't please God at all. Verse 3, by faith we, Christians, understand, get this, that the worlds were prepared or made or created by the word of God. There it is. How did God create everything? By his word. How did God make light? By his word. God said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. That's how it happened. It happened on day one, just like the Bible says. Now, there are Christians who say, well, no, I mean, it didn't really literally happen this way. This is like a parable. Parables aren't true stories. They aren't history. They're theological truths to communicate a theological point. As I had one so-called evangelical Genesis scholar tell me two weeks ago to my face in my Genesis class. Well, you know, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, they're like parables. You can't take them literally. You can't take them historically. And, you know, parables that Jesus used most often to communicate theological and religious and spiritual truth, they are, parables are not true history. You can't take them literally. For example, there never was a Samaritan uh, on the good road or on the road uh, and the, the whole, that whole parable about the good Samaritan. He said there never was a Samaritan. Uh, there never was a priest that walked by. There never was uh, a man who was hurt and needed help. That was all fictitious. It never happened. Jesus made up a story, just told it to communicate a theological truth. And the truth to take away from that is that you got to be loving to your neighbor. I'm thinking, how do you know that that never happened? Just because it's a story or a parable. Could very well be it was a real story and Jesus knew about it because at times he knew everything. 
It doesn't say in the passage, oh, this story is not true. It could very well be that it, it was true. And so they argue that way theologically, just undermining Scripture, and they're trying to tell us, I mean, you can't take Genesis chapter 1. His whole point was you can't take Genesis chapter 1 at face value. It didn't happen that way. So you're telling me it didn't happen the way that is delineated here in Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, that's correct. It's all a parable. So literally, so God didn't say, then God said in verse 3. So that really didn't happen, is what you're saying. Probably not. Then God, wait. So when it says that then God said, it really means that God didn't say that. And when it says, then God said, let there be light, God didn't say, let there be light at this moment in time in history. Well, probably. And when God said, then God said, let there be light, and there was light, that didn't happen either. And verse 4 didn't happen. And God didn't say the light was good when he saw it. And then God didn't separate the light from the darkness. And God didn't call the light day and the darkness. He didn't call it night. And there wasn't evening and there wasn't morning and there wasn't one day. Is that what you're saying? Because that's what they're saying. So it, it is profound. If you're going to take the New Testament, I've asked these same scholars, wait, okay, so you're saying, the reason you're saying we can't take it literally, then God said, is because the secular, evolutionary, humanistic, atheistic, scientific world, which is hostile to the Bible, tells us, well, the archaeological stones testify that the earth is 4.5 billion years old, and that we, when we do the math on the solar system, the solar system is 13 billion years old. Therefore, you can't believe Genesis chapter 1. That's why. And so then Christians buy into this because they're intimidated by the secular scientists. And then they just change the meaning, plain meaning of Scripture. There's got to be a different meaning here. It's got to be a parable. We can't take it literally. We can't take it at face. I mean, good, born-again, Bible-believing Christians then adopt that view on Genesis chapter 1. But then these same Christians will ask him. And I mentioned this, I think, last week. So in the New Testament, but you believe that Jesus walked on the water, right? Yes. Well, is, is that scientific? No. So you believe Lazarus was raised from the dead after four days of being dead and his body was crushed, and Jesus just, boom, brought him out. You believe that literally? Yeah, absolutely. But you don't believe this literally? No. Why? Because this isn't scientific. So Lazarus coming back from the dead instantaneously, that's scientific? No, it's not. It's totally unscientific supernatural so they're just not being consistent in how they read the bible further this comment on then god said then god said 10 times in genesis chapter 1 moses wrote down then god said moses wrote that because i think moses believed god said how did moses know that because god told him because nobody else was there except the triune god and god told moses hey moses thousands of years ago when i made everything here's how it happened then god said write that down and th then I said this, and then I said this, and then God said this. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said. Forty times in the book of Genesis it says, and then God said. If you're going to take one, then God said, and say, well, that wasn't literal, that never happened, that isn't historical, then you're going to have to do that with the other 39 statements in the book of Genesis when it says, and God said. Here it's, God said to the Trinity, let there be light. Then it says, God said to Adam, God said to Eve, God said to the snake, God said to Noah, God said to Abraham, God said to Isaac, God said to Jacob, God said to Joseph. You can't pick and choose. God literally said all those things. Then you go to the book of Exodus right after Genesis. 30 times in the book of Exodus, maybe more, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, then the Lord said 
over 30 times in the book of Exodus. Times like God said, Moses, write this down. And then there are comments that are made that Moses spoke to God face to face. Moses spoke to God as his friend. Moses spoke to God like no other human being. Moses was a prophet. The scripture says that. God literally spoke to Moses, sometimes in visions, sometimes in dreams, sometimes literally audibly he spoke to Moses. God did. Then God said, then God said, that's just the first two books of the Bible. 40 times in Genesis, 30 times to Moses in the book of Exodus, then go through the rest of the Old Testament to all the prophets. Then God said to Isaiah, God said to Jeremiah, God said to Hosea, God said to Jonah. And then you've got thousands of times that phrase where it said, God said to whoever the believer was. Are you going to discount those? Those didn't happen. Those weren't historical. They didn't really come into reality. That's what you've got to consider. So then God said, this is literally what he said. This is how he brought light into existence. The book of Hebrews confirms that. We just read it. We know, Christians know by faith. In other words, we don't have empirical evidence. We were not there. There were no eyewitnesses save the spirit of, or the triune God himself. But he's revealed that information. And Hebrews 11 says, we believe it by faith because God purposely revealed it to us. That's why we believe it. And that God created the world by the word of his power. His word is so powerful. God speaks and it comes to reality. Think of all the things that God did just by his word. Several things in chapter 1. God's powerful word brought light into existence. By the way, light didn't exist prior to this. It was darkness, just utter darkness. And God said, well, you know what? Humanity needs light to survive. And so God said, let there be light. And poof, there was light. What is light? By the way, this is one of those so-called inconsistencies that people like to point out that Genesis 1 can't be taken literally because there's a contradiction because God didn't make the sun until day four and here on day one, supposedly he made light. There's a blatant contradiction. See, you can't trust your Bible. And I always bring this to the seminary students. Every time we're teaching Genesis, I have them come up and I, I ask them, here's a contradiction supposedly. Do you believe God made the sun on day four? Yes. Do you believe God made light on day one? Uh, ooh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Well, that's a contradiction. How do you have light without the sun on day one? And many times they can't answer the question. And I'm thinking, wow, I, I didn't think it was that difficult. Uh, I believe God created the sun on day four, and he created light on day one. And all, you know what light is? Light's just energy, that's all. What do you need to have light? Just energy. And I'll, I'll help these seminary students step by step. Come on, baby steps. Let me help you out here. Can you have light without the sun? Well, no. Well, wait. Uh, well, yes. Can I don't know. Can we? Yeah. Yeah. Like when the sun goes down at nighttime at 1130, do you walk around in the dark all the time? No, I turn the light on. What light? The sun is. Well, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. So, well, God didn't make that. Uh, GE did. No, no. God made light. All you need for light is energy. That's what it means. God created energy because light comes from different sources other than the sun. Light comes from stars. Light comes from... Did you know that light comes from even creatures, animals that God had made, like fireflies? They're called that for a reason. And some kind of a squid or whatever that emits light and neon fish that I have in my fish tank or used to have. They seem to glow in the dark. Lightning, that's light. The bottom line is you. all you need is energy. God created energy. Light is a created entity. It has properties. It moves be described god created light this is he is light but this is created light this is light separate from him and he will 
he may very well banish this kind of light in the future when he and his the fullness of him as his person, his light will be glorious enough to light all of the universe in the eternal heavens. But here's what God created for the benefit of humanity to live successfully on the earth. As a matter of fact, humans, plants, and animals cannot live without light. So God created the energy, and he created light somehow on day one. Poof, there it was. And the light was mixed up with the darkness. And then it says, then God said, let there be light. Oh, by the way, getting back to what God said. Then God said, uh, we go to the New Testament and just think of all the things by the word of Jesus' word, how powerful it was. Think of all the things that Jesus did just by his word. He is the same triune God that brought light into existence with the power of his word. Jesus. Remember, he said things like, be gone, Satan, with a word, and Satan was gone. Or when he's on the ship and the storm on the series, and he says, be still, and he rebukes the winds and the storm, and instantaneously it's gone by the power of his word. That's Jesus. That is God. Or when Jesus said to the layman, he said, take up your mat and walk. And the man did, just by the power of his word. Didn't even touch him, lay hands on him. Just with a spoken, powerful word. And then when people said you can't, uh, or actually before that, he said your sins are forgiven with a, a powerful word. That's the most amazing miracle that God does just with his word is he declares people forgiven of their sins. That is so awesome. That miracle goes on every day, every time a person turns to Christ. With the power of God's word, the power of his truth, he declares people forgiven. That's the greatest miracle of all. So does the power of God's word. Then God said, then God said. So in other words, I'm just trying to tell you, take God at his word at face value. It's right there in the Bible. We walk by faith, not by sight. We can trust God was there. He's the only one. He gave this revelation. He preserved it to be true. He was guided by the spirit as Moses wrote it down for our good, for our understanding, for our edification. God's word can be trusted despite all the critics and all the deception. Then God said, then God said, then God said, then God said, and believe it, it is true. Don't let anybody come along and say, did God really say? Oh, that sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, that was Genesis chapter three. Oh, that was the snake who was possessed by Satan himself, who went to Adam and Eve and first even said, did God really say? The first blatant deception, contradiction, undermining of God's truth spoken at face value. And it's been going on ever since. Unbelievers, deniers, and Satan himself. That's what Satan wants to do. That's his greatest weapon. To get people to deny the face value truth of God's word. And especially Christians. True believers are vulnerable to this. I can't really trust the Bible. It's not scientific. People criticize it. I don't have enough evidence. Yeah, you do. We believe it by faith. Then God said, there was light. And there was light. Verse 4, God saw that it was good. It was perfectly sufficient in terms of how it would function as God desired. Then what did he do next? God separated the light from the darkness. So now he's, you know what he's doing here? He's creating a day for humanity. He's creating time. He's not using the sun yet. God is separating light from day. Fixing them perfectly, 12-hour increments each, with a spherical body that he is fashioning, the earth. All the water still covering it. He'll separate the water in the next day. But he's dealing with the time, the a, a time increment by which humans will function. We function with time. We have to function with time. We're time-oriented beings, and God knew that. He designed us this way. Uh, the sun and the moon and the stars have nothing to do with that. God is going to set 
time in motion exactly the way he wants it, 24 hours, the same way it is today. And after he's done that, and it's going to function that way for three days, and then he's going to mark that with a permanent barometer that we can actually see through the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon were added later after time had already been set by God as he separated day and night. Really? Well, that's what it says. He separated it. He gave purpose to it. He gave form and fashion to it. Verse 5, and then God made a declaration. He called it. When God calls something and gives it a name, he has authority over it. He's sovereign over it. God called Adam man. God called Eve woman. God calls uh, certain things specific names as he controls and has sovereignty over it. And so God called the light day. He gave it a name. There it is. We have day to this day. Where did days come from? Well, God made it. And the darkness God called night, day and night. Why do we have day and night? Because God created them and named them accordingly, separated them accordingly, fixed them accordingly. And they're going to have even more regularity on day four. When he gives them the barometers of sun, moon, and stars. And then in verse five, God called the light day, the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Go back to your outline there. Number four, the creation, God made light. And then finally, point number five, the criterion. The standard by which a day is defined. God is the one who gives the criterion of what a day is. God defined a day. He made it as clear as a bell. He repeats it throughout chapter 1 and throughout the whole Old Testament. And human beings don't have the prerogative to invent and make up their own definition of what a day is according to the Bible, especially when it's given so specifically. Because the big argument for many Christians is, well, you can't take a day literally in Genesis chapter 1. Well, why not? It's repeated seven, six times. God's very specific about it. He separates day and night. He gives them names day and night. Not only that, he goes on with his definition. He's giving his criterion of what constitutes a day. The end of verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning one day. That is a definition according to the Bible of what a day is. What is a day according to God? Well, it constitutes an evening and a morning. For us today, that's about a 24-hour cycle. 12 hours and 12 hours, just about. And there was evening and there was morning one day. And God gets very specific. He says, that's the, or literally, we, tra- we understand it as day one, the first day. Actually, and that's what it means. This is the first day in a, in a series of other days to follow. That's why there are two different words he could have chosen for the word one. And he chose this one, one day. And uh, you know what? There's going to be a day two. And there's going to be a day three and there's going to be a day four. So just two things I want to close with regarding one day and why we can take them literally. Because anytime, so the word for day in Hebrew is yom, Y-O-M. It's on your handout there. Just a simple word. Anytime in the Old Testament, there's an adjective that's a numerical adjective or a number with the word yom, it always means a real normal day. Pretty much without exception. A real day. Moses was the one that wrote this down, by the way, because God gave him that information. Then in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, Moses was giving the Ten Commandments, and when he got to the Fourth Commandment, God said, God said, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. The, seventh, the Sabbath day was the seventh day. That was Saturday for us. Honor the seventh. So, so Moses' day, or his week, had seven days in it, literally, in 1400 B.C. By the way, just about every country on planet Earth today has a seven-day week. Not by coincidence, but because that's how God defined a week. Based on the definition of a day. 
And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, God said, honor the seventh day, work six days and rest on the seventh day because God said to Moses and the Israelites, because the Lord God created the world in six days and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, honor the seventh day. Moses literally believed a day meant a day because that's what he said and that's what he wrote and that's what God told him. So just on those two reasons alone, you can take day literally in Genesis chapter 1. The only way you can get around it is you're not dealing with the text of the Bible. You're not using the grammar and the syntax of the Bible. You're not using the context of Genesis chapter 1. You're not using the testimony verified by Moses who wrote this chapter. You have to come up with other reasons to get around the Bible and go under the Bible and over the Bible and and skirt the issue and not deal with the details and come up with philosophical reasons, theoretical reasons, speculative reasons. Theory and arguing from a distance, not in the details of what God said in his word. So we can believe God at his word. And what a glorious thing that he is the creator and created light on our benefit on day one. So today as you go the rest of the day, enjoy the light all around you. Energy, a gift from God. Who knows how long we have it? As long as he says. Enjoy the sun. He made it for our benefit. He is the giver of all good gifts. Let's give him the glory of the Father of lights. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day to be with the saints, uh, the blessed fellowship we've been able to have, the honoring of our fathers, um, the blessing and prayer for our families and their babies and their children, and again, the privilege to study your word together. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. And I pray that he would give us further clarity and understanding regarding your word, and also that your spirit would help us apply it to our life. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.